Romans chapter 8, verse 1. We'll, we'll begin there in just a minute. I've been, I've been debating about saying anything about this because it's personal. It has nothing to do with Scripture. Uh, but uh, just my experience just now, uh, I grew up in a very formal church where, you know, as a, even a little boy, we were dressed up in coats and ties. And uh, you were taught to sit very rigid and still with your hands folded and because, you know, you didn't want to do anything to distract or embarrass God. Um, and that was, just, you know, it was a good church. It wasn't a bad church. It's just, just, just the way it was. Problem was, I was ADHD, and it was like somebody poured a can of ants down my pants, you know, expecting me to sit still. And uh, I was just sitting here observing this beautiful little girl dancing. And, you know, I was taught it was sinful to dance. But the reality is, is if God has put joy in their heart, let the children dance. Now, and listen, I just want to end with this. This is not the message. <laughs> By saying this, some of you dads would be glad to hear that. Uh, I can't dance. I won't dance. You'll be glad to hear that. But one day I will dance. One day I will. So take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. And uh, we're actually going to look a little bit more in depth in chapter 8 when my son texted me and said, hey, I want you to preach this text. Uh, I said, Chris, I can't do that. Uh, you know, Romans 8 begins with the word therefore. And anytime you see the word therefore, in Scripture, it means that everything I'm about to say is based on what I just said. <clears throat> and therefore, Chris, if I, you know, I, you know, in my mind, I, what I really thought was, you know better. Uh, you know better than to tell me to go to these people and pull this Scripture out of its context and start with Romans chapter 8. You know, verse. I think I think he did the one through four, the short little passage, because his hope was it would shorten my message. But that never that doesn't work either. Uh, but uh, you know, your pastor Chris has. I can tell you, he's got the gift of mercy, because when I taught him, I said, Chris, that's very difficult to preach that text just as it is. And his text response was, "Not my problem." So it's now my problem, and, and it's yours. Uh, let me just give you a little bit of history. Uh, the Apostle Paul, of course, was a converted Jew, a Pharisee who had come to faith in Christ after persecuting uh, Christians. Uh, he'd spent some time, you know, just kind of getting his life together. Uh, seven years somewhere in Syria where he kind of listened to the apostles and tried to understand, make sense out of his Judaism and his Christianity and, you know, how that was interconnected and what had changed. Uh, and then he began to, uh, you know, kind of aggressively go out and share the message of Jesus, which, you know, got him into some trouble. There was a lot of, there was a lot of distrust in the church, but, you know, after a while that evaporated, evaporated. He didn't spend a lot of time in Jerusalem. He spent most of his time with the Greeks, which is, is, is very interesting because Paul was anything but a Greek. 
Uh, Paul was brought up under the Mosaic law. He was a, he observed it strictly. He expected his uh, colleagues in his na the nation of Israel uh, to be obedient to the law. We're going to find out that that set up a real tension and a dilemma in his life. Uh, but he primarily, he ministered to Greeks and Romans. Uh, he ministered to people who had, had no, no relationship whatsoever uh, to what you and I would just kind of informally know as, as the Ten Commandments. Uh, and so they, they'd never heard the Ten Commandments. They didn't know anything about the Ten Commandments. But what Paul would do is he would go into these Greek towns like Philippi or, you know, Corinth or other places, and he would first go into the Jewish synagogues because they had a foundation of the Old Testament, and he would preach until he got thrown out. And that's invariably what happened. Sometimes he was thrown out. Sometimes he was beaten. You know, sometimes he was chased out of town. Uh, but, but invariably what would happen is a few of the Jews would come to faith in Christ. And, and the first church, New Testament church, first gathering, uh, typically in these towns would initially be, at the very beginning, uh, Jews who had come to faith in Christ. Uh, and then what happened is Paul would be, then go and begin to share the good news of the gospel with what the Jews would have called the Gentiles. You've got to remember, for Paul as a Pharisee, what the Gentiles, what the beloved Gentiles, the, the neighbors of Israel, people like you and I, what, what our other name was besides Gentile was dog. And as a matter of fact, more often than not, when they would talk about people like us with our non-Jewish heritage, and, and I, you know, I'm not slamming the Jews, it's just a first century reality, is we were the Gentile dogs because we did not, we were ignorant in our sins, and so we kind of lived the way we lived, and we didn't know any better, and we didn't want to know any better, and so the Jews just didn't want anything to do with us. And, and now all of a sudden, this radical event is happening where there's so many firsts going on in the first century. First time in history where men and women worship together in any religion is in Christianity. The first time that ever free men and slaves were now sitting together worshiping. The first time because Rome, you know, had conquered most of the known world at the time, there were, there were all these nationalities, and most of them would have had Greek at least as a secondary language, but it wasn't their primary language. But, but now the church is congregating together. And you've got all these, I mean, it's very different than the uh, American experience where we're very homogenous. Uh, you would have had people from almost every known tribe, every language, you know, different colored folks, different ethnicities. Now we just kind of like to all go to our own little corner if we believe in God and worship God, but it wasn't that way. They couldn't afford it because of persecution. They just, they just came together. So pa Paul is essentially writing them these letters. They weren't actually books. Uh, they were letters, and most of the time, what he's doing is he's he's responding like in in the book of Philippians. I'm at another church right now as an interim pastor, and we're going through the book of Philippians. The Philippians were primarily Greeks, and and Paul doesn't even really mention uh, the, the the trouble of the law or the the issues that he had as a Jew with the law. Uh, and so he's, he's writing the Philippians because they're an excellent church. They're, they're, they're a group of believers that get together. They love one another. Uh, they're being persecuted, but they're doing a great job uh, in their community that is hostile to the gospel. But they're doing a great job of demonstrating the power of God and the love of God. And the people of Philippi are 
observing this and more and more are coming to faith. And Paul just basically writes a letter of encouragement to the Philippians. But, but when you get to uh, books like Corinthians, uh, you've got a church in Corinth that's very what we would call very fleshly. There's a lot of sexual immorality going on in the community. So that's kind of translating into the church. And, and Paul has to kind of write saying, well, as Christians, we do have a Christian ethnic. And he, he explains all that to the Corinthians. And sometimes he gets pretty you know tough on them. And then when you look at the Galatians, you've got, what, you've got a group called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers, uh, you know, will we'll allow the judgment to be wait for heaven whether or not they were believers. But essentially what they were, they were, they were converted Jews who said Christianity is the law plus Jesus. Christianity is the law plus Jesus. And what Paul is saying to the, to the Galatians in chastisement is it's Jesus and nothing else. <laughs> it, it's just Jesus alone. The law, the law won't save you. All the law can do is condemn you. The law can make you feel guilty, but it, but it can't save you. Only Jesus can save you. Only Jesus can transform the human heart. And so Paul, if you follow their, the, their fours, Paul, it goes all the way back to chapter 1. So, I mean, you almost, in order to get the context of chapter 8, you, you kind of have to begin in chapter 1. And, of course, we don't have time to even go in that direction. But Paul begins first talking to the Greeks. Now, see, the Greeks, never, the Greeks had never heard the law. And, and it's a lot like what America has become. I, I grew up, when I was a kid, the law was everywhere. In every classroom, in my school, as an uh, elementary school student, there was the Ten Commandments. Every morning, uh, my school teacher started off with a Bible reading. Now, it was just, it was part of our culture. The law was everywhere. We, whether we obeyed it or not, whether or not we were Christian or not, uh, really isn't an issue. It, America was never always a Christian nation. There were always Christians in that nation. But we did, we did have this, this national awareness of the law, the Ten Commandments. We could, you know, talk about, uh, you know, all the Ten Commandments. We don't have time to do that. But there, there was generally, there, there was an awareness of it. And when we would, we, we would talk to people, especially in the, in the South, about the gospel, we would almost begin uh, to, we'd almost begin with an application of the law because they already felt guilty. I mean, even, even if they were on crack cocaine and beating their wife, they usually, they knew something. If they're my age or a little bit older, they knew something of the law because they grew up with the law. And that law kind of served as guardrails on the freeway, and they wanted to get rid of those guardrails, but now in America, they're gone. They're gone. And so what Paul is saying is, is that doesn't matter. Paul is basically making this argumentation or making this reasoning that there is both specific revelation. God has specifically spoken to us in this way, in this time, through Jesus Christ, just as God specifically spoke to the Jews through the Old Testament law during the time of Israel. But God says, and the Greeks know this, but God has given every man and every woman around the world a conscience. Now, some of you know your pastor's story. We, we, we took our kids, grew up uh, overseas. And one of the things that we do as an organization is uh, we don't go to Costa Rica. <laughs> uh, as, although we do have some missionaries. In, we, we normally send our missionaries to places you never heard of because they are restricted, hard, dangerous areas. 
We call them unreached, un, unengaged people groups. There's, there's, there's no one there. There's no church there. There's no national there, there's to work with. They're just hard places. And, and many times when we begin to have a discussion with an individual, they've never heard of Jesus. They've never heard of the law. They've never heard of any such thing. So you've, you've got to take a whole different approach. But you'll, you'll hear missionaries who have gone with this expectation of having to build a bridge to these people to find out that God is already there. And that's called general revelation. And this is what Paul is explaining. And I just want to give you a kind of foretaste. We can't go into that this morning, but I want to give you a foretaste of what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1, verse 19 through 20. He says, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. Every man has a conscience. Every woman has a conscience. We instinctively know things like the Ten Commandments prohibit, like murder and stealing and wanting what other people have. We know that that makes them miserable and fearful of us because we might rob them of those things. It makes us unhappy because we don't have those things. All those things we see in the Mosaic Law. Paul says God has already spoken to humanity. Now, that, that gives us hope for post-Christian America. Because, you know, there's a feeling, if you're a little bit older today, that God has totally abandoned us. But the reality is, is the Holy Spirit is still working in the hearts of people across our country. He does it through a different way because everyone has a conscience. God, Paul goes on to say, for his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. In other words, God is at work in our culture. Even though we deny his existence, we deny his work, we've denied his law, we've turned our back on his law as a nation, the reality is, is God is still at work in our country, and so should we be as believers. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, it says this. This is the Old Testament. Mankind, not the Jews. So here you have an Old Testament prophet addressing the world he says mankind he has shown and he has told you what is good and what the lord requires of you act justly love faithfulness walk humbly with your god i mean basically god says revelation is everywhere and Paul, Paul moves on from that point of saying that all people have revelation of God into the, the reality of his Jewish experience. And as a Jew, and for a lot of us, again, who have grown up in the church, we, we know exactly what Paul is talking about. So, so beginning at ver, in verse 7, verse 13 is really where we're going to pick up. And if you'll notice, if you look at chapter 7, verse 13, it begins with the word, therefore. I mean, you can't get away from the word therefore because Paul's just building his case, moving towards the beautiful chapter, the eighth chapter of what God has done in our generation, what God is now doing, what now God has to say to the world, the message that God wants every man and woman in Seattle and Asheville and New York and Afghanistan. He wants them to hear this truth, this amazing truth of how God is working through his son in humanity. But he begins in verse 13. 13 talking about the law look if you would therefore did, uh, did what is good uh, cause my death and what Paul is saying is as a Pharisee uh, keeping the law I, I was spiritually dead to the things of God I knew the law 
I tried to obey the law. I didn't really obey the law, but I tried to obey the law. I demanded that everybody else around me obey the law, but the reality is I was separated from God. And what he's saying is this, is I was a very religious man, but far from God. Did you know that? Did you know that some of the people that are the furthest from God are religious people? Just going through the motions, just doing it. Just, just trying to exercise uh, the law of God, the goodness of God through the, the flesh. And Paul said, listen, I was spiritually dead. The law's not bad, but essentially I had some real issues. And he goes on and he says, on the contrary, sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. And what he was saying essentially is this, is all the law did, it was a mirror revealing to me that I was rebellious against God. That I was in a state of rebellion against God. And I mean, he goes into this, you know, in great detail. That's, that's what the law does. We're going to talk about the goodness of the law, but the reality is when, when you and I as Christians tried to live as, as our primary mode of operation, the law in place of grace, what we end up with is this terrible sense of guilt because Jesus made it very clear. It's not only what we do, but it's what we feel and what we think, right? You see, God doesn't just look at our actions. He looks at my heart. And see, I may, I may never say anything to you. I may never say to you, you know, you, you, I saw you the other day on the freeway and you cut me off in traffic. I, you know, I may never say, I hate you. But I thought it. And he may never know it. We, I really didn't see him on the freeway. But he'll never know it. But God knows it. God sees my heart. And so Paul knew that even though if he could physically exercise to some degree obedience to the old Mosaic law, there were always significant points of failure because what had not happened is his heart had never been changed. You see, I, I can remember as a little boy, I grew up in a very moralistic Christianity. And when I would come in drunk, uh, but because I was a Baptist and I had been baptized, my mother would say, uh, uh, Baptists or Christians don't behave that way. Well, well number one is uh, I wasn't a Christian. And number two is I wanted to behave that way. <laughs> I was rather enjoying my sin. Thank you very much. And uh, I didn't, she, what she was thinking is that she could guilt me into moral behavior. But it was later on as, as an adult in the university system uh, that I began to be confronted with my wickedness and my broken heart and the ugliness of who I was as a man that I realized I didn't need the law. I needed a different heart. I needed to change a heart. Something needed to change. In the law, I'd been convicted. I'd felt guilty before. I'd had that conflict. I knew the life I was living was contrary to the law of God, but it never changed me. Never changed me. I mean, I tried to turn over a new leaf from time to time, but that was no fun. <laughs> so I, I just went back to the way that I was living. So Paul here is talking about the anguish of, of guilt. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm made out of flesh. So in the law, I'm rebellious by my nature, he's saying. For I do not understand what I am doing because I don't practice what I want to do. I, I mean, I'd like to be this good person. 
I'd like to be a person who always loved and respected my parents. I'd, I'd like to always look out for my neighbor more than I do myself. I'd like to always, you know, honor my wife in everything that I do. I'd like to always tell the truth. I mean, I'd like to do all these things because I'm aware of the law, but I just, I fell at this so often. He picks up in verse 15, for I don't understand what I'm doing because I don't practice what I want to do, but what I hate. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree with the law that it's good. I mean, it's condemning me because I'm violating the law of God. So now I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin, it's sin living in me. For I now, I, for I know that nothing good lives in me that is my flesh. Let, let me say this. What Paul is doing is what is increasingly difficult for youth of America to do. Paul is doing a sober assessment of who he really is as a man. You and I are told daily this whole concept of self-actualization. You're wonderful. You're beautiful. If you'd like to play basketball like Michael Jordan, you can do it. <laughs> when you get up at 6.30 in the morning, you have good breath. No need to brush your teeth. I mean, self-actualization is what we go back into the first chapter. It's called delusion. It's delusion. I'm okay. You're not, but I'm okay. And the reality is what we see is we see as we see in history, every culture that shears its conscience to God descends into chaos. And that's exactly where we're going in America. We're descending into chaos. There is not a statistic from suicide to depression to drug abuse that has not skyrocketed in our generation because we've shared the conscience. We're self-deluded. University teachers, self-deluded. Media types, self-deluded. Even preachers, self-deluded. But Paul's still capable of doing this. He's capable of saying, I'm not right. There's something wrong. There's something just dear, deep in the core. Even though I'm, I'm a moral man, I, I do my best. There, there's something deep in the core of me that's, that's just not right. And Paul is essentially saying the, the law is like a mirror. It's like a mirror. We look in the mirror. And when we look in the mirror, we see ourselves no matter what anybody else tells me. They can tell me I'm a little princess, but when I get up in the morning and look in the mirror, I don't see a little princess. <laughs> and, and, and so this, this is Paul's argumentation. And so look, if you would, at verse 19. For I don't do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I don't want to do. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, I'm no longer the one doing it, but it's sin, this principle of the flesh, the sin, the rebellion that's in me. So I discover this principle. When I want to do what is good, evil's with me. In my inner self, self I joyfully agree with God's law. It's good to do the. It's good not to kill people. It's good not to rob. It's good to be kind. It's good to love. It's good to do all these things. And then he finishes that segment by saying, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? When Paul says, what a wretched man I am, that, that is the beginning of salvation. That's the beginning of transformation. Now, there, there's a lot more you've got to add on to that. That's, that's just the beginning of the sentence. But the beginning of the sentence is coming to that place to, to being able to say, you know, you've heard it said before. I saw this the other day where, where in one of the school shootings, there was a mother 
And somebody, in order to encourage that mother who had had her daughter brutally shot down, they, they wrote this text message to that mother and they said, you're more than enough. You're not more than enough. You need God. We need each other. What a horrible to think that I have to go into myself to garner up resources to make and face some of the storms of life that we were never intended to face apart from a God who is sovereign and mighty and powerful. You're not enough. God's enough. Well, he goes on and he makes it very clear that the law is a problem for those that are Jewish and their law is a problem for those that are even religious. <clears throat> we hate the law. I watched the other night, uh, my wife and I don't watch a lot of television, but, well, we, we watch some stuff. I'm cheap, so I, we don't pay for anything. No Netflix or anything like that. We watch a lot of YouTube and uh, Roku and stuff like that. And uh, you don't laugh at me, I can go fishing. But anyway, uh, I, I'm really cheap. We watch a lot of YouTube, and uh, we found one that said a millennial explaining hippies to millennials and I thought well I was a hippie long hair you know drug guy I want to hear what this millennial has to say about hippies well what they did was they spent a long time talking about you got to understand that student activists weren't necessarily hippies and hippies weren't you know it's talking about the 60s and they had a clip of, of a guy, I'm trying to remember his name, Jerry Rubin, who was kind of a leader in the revolutionary movement of the 60s, which we're kind of seeing, you know, that same type of language again in America. We need, we need a revolution. You know, both sides. Of course, everybody uses it now. It doesn't matter who it is. We need a revolution. Well, you know, what do you mean by that? So Jerry Rubin would say, we, we need it. So it had this little clip of Jerry Rubin. The media loved him. The, the media has all, they love to put people like that on TV. You know, and, and, you know, back then, everybody wore suits and ties and dresses, and Jerry's got his beard, and he's got his shirt off, and hairy chest, you know, and he goes, uh, we reject your antiperspirant. You know, in America, you think we love body odor. I mean, he's going, he's going. You know, and of course, the media loves it. They're going on, and he goes, and finally, he gets to the crux of his point. He said, "America, we hate your laws, and we will not obey your regulations." And I, you know, when I saw that, I thought, you know, uh, that's that's not a student activist. That's that's me. <laughs> that's everybody. That's everybody. How many of you are aware of the, the law of Apple? The law of Apple. When, a, few, a few years ago, uh, I, I've always been resistant to technology. I've had to work with technology, and I hate technology as a result of it. So somebody actually, a, a friend's wife, got rid of her Apple Watch, and I got it. So I thought, okay, got, you know, what can you, it's free. What can you do? So I'm wearing this Apple Watch, and when you set it up, it says, uh, set up your, your rings of activity and set some exercise goals. And I think, well, you know, what can be the harm? And so I, I set up these rings of activity. And so what happens is, is, is when I get up in the morning, it immediately gives me a synopsis of what I did or did not do yesterday. <laughs> and and then, I, then all through the day, it's saying, Joe, have you checked your rings? And, you know, and I'm thinking, no, and I'm not going to check my rings. And, and you know it's it's just it's just all day long. I've got grown to hate this thing. And 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 not only that, but you know I'm getting older. And when I eat my lunch, I'm I'm tired. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna 
You know, I'm not going to make any excuses. I like to lay down after I eat my lunch. Five minutes after I lay down, this thing starts buzzing and it says time to stand up. And I think, who the heck? <laughs> now, now listen, there's, there's not someone in Silicon Valley with a computer saying, watch this. <laughs> it, it's totally impersonal. The law... That, that's what Paul, Paul is saying. The law is righteous, has no power. Has no power. And, 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 and you, so, so the, the, the law, now Apple doesn't have it out for me. I know that intellectually. You know, if you look at it, uh, is it a good thing that I exercise? Yeah, it's good. So the law of Apple is actually not the antagonist although I don't like it, that, that I make out to be. Now, I, my wife and I did these personality profiles. We've done a million of them as, as, you know, in the organizations we've been involved with. And this one uses animals to kind of give you personality description. And my, 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 my wife is a, uh, a Labrador retriever slash beaver. Now, Labrador Retriever means uh, she's very loyal, she loves people, and the beaver it means that she's very detailed, she's very task-oriented, and, and she loves rules and regulations. Now, she married me, and my personality type is hates rules and regulations. <laughs> but I, I can assure you, I never run the risk of, of, of exceeding or getting a speeding ticket when she's with me because she is constantly telling me, look at the road, look at the speed limit, look at the car in front of you. You know, she, she is a beaver. She follows the law. I've, ne I've never met, read a regulation that my wife doesn't think, well, that seems to be perfectly reasonable to me. But I, but I, I got her this week. I got her this week. We're in our car. We're pulling into our driveway. And before we get into our garage, my wife takes her seatbelt off. A feminine voice comes across our speakers and says, put your seatbelt on. My wife's initial response, response was, shut up, woman. <laughs> you know what they call that biblically? That's sin. Sin, sin, sin is, a, is a Greek term that's an archery term. Did you know that? Sin means to miss the target. Why did God give us the law that we so desperately hate in our nation today? Three reasons, and you need to remember these. The law, God gave us the law to protect me from you. God gave me rights as an individual, and you don't have the right to come and steal my wife. You don't have the right to come and steal my car from my garage. God, you don't have the right to put your fist firmly upon my nose in God's law. So God gave me, gave us the law to protect me from you, but God also gave the law to protect you from me. The only way we have a civil society is the, we know and we understand the limits and the boundaries that were set by a good God who loves humanity and wanted to protect you. And then the third reason that God gave me the law was he gave us the law to protect us from ourselves. I was really into rock and roll, still like it. And the Allman Brothers, being a southerner, was one of my groups. 
And um, uh, the other night on YouTube, I was watching the story of the Allman Brothers. And uh, probably Eric Clapton and Dwayne Allman are considered to be two of the best guitarists of that generation. And it was going into what I didn't know and realized had happened is Dwayne Allman liked to get high and get on his motorcycle and exceed the speed limit. And, and his band members had said, we'd warned him about that. We'd kind of, and he said, listen, he said, I don't, I don't need your laws. So he was in Atlanta. He was on his Harley. He was going, they say, estimate somewhere between 90 and 100 miles an hour in a 35 mile an hour residential zone. He came around a corner and there was a big truck and Dwayne Allman just right into the back of that truck. He lived for two hours, but ultimately he died because he made fun of the law. That law, that law was not in place to make Dwayne Allman miserable. One of his bandmates uh, at his funeral, they were interviewing him, said, Dwayne lived and died exactly as he would have wanted. Well, 40 years later on the interview, what he said just a few years ago is, we were young and we were foolish. That's where we're at in our country. We just, just, we hate the law, but we don't understand the law is not the representation of God's hatred for you. It's a representation of God's love for that which he has created. But we cannot have a relationship through the law because who have, who this morning has violated the law of God? I didn't really want you to raise your hands, but I do it every day. I don't like it. I, I, sometimes I feel I feel guilty about it, and I get I mean, I've got a I've got an enemy that's spiritual, and he uses that to remind me how you know I'm, I'm a terrible person, and I have no right to say anything or do anything because you know you've you you might not have done that, but you thought that, and in God's books that's the same. Now here we go. We're going to finish up. So Paul in verse 24 says this, What a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Now church, I want you to see this. And this is why we ought to dance. I thank God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, now there is no condemnation. It's gone. The guilt the shame, the fear, it's gone. He goes on and he says in that little compact verse, uh, for those who are in Christ Jesus because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the flesh like ours uh, under the sin's dominion and as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be accomplished in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Let me just kind of finish with these three things you can take home. Number one is there is no, you know, the Old Testament is filled with uh, passages that exhort us 
to have the fear of God. Now, there's a, there's a healthy fear of God, but the New Testament also tells us this. Where, where there's perfect love, it's cast out all fear. So, so now, because of what Jesus Christ has done, the fear of standing before God and, and having to face our failures is, is wiped out, it's erased, it's gone, it's covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. As men and women, when you choose to follow Christ, you are free forever. You're free. Church, we ought to be dancing. At least we could sing every once in a while. But no, number two is, Jesus, Jesus paid it all. It doesn't matter what we thought. It doesn't matter what we've done. His sacrifice is sufficient. God so loved the world that he gave his son that whosoever, anyone, Anyone doing anything, having done anything, all men and women who come to Christ will be reconciled with the Holy God. Well, what's changed? Let me finish with this one illustration. We'll be done. When I was a kid, we didn't have a wash, we didn't have a dishwasher. I know that's hard for some of you to imagine. But uh, one of my chores, yes, we had chores was to wash the dishes every night. When that, that went well for maybe 11 or 12 years, and all of a sudden I turned 13 and I got testosterone, and I, I, I was a man and I knew much, and my parents were not very bright, and I knew it was very unseemly for a 13-year-old male to spend his evenings washing the dishes. And so we began, you know, a running battle of rebellion against the law of our house. And my parents were woefully ignorant. They much didn't care. I mean, I, I was going to do it if I was going to sleep in the back bedroom and I was going to eat mama's cooking and I was going to wash the dishes. And, you know, you do get hungry after a while. And so I washed the dishes, but I complained and I argued and I rebelled against that law of the Dillon household of washing dishes. And when I went away to college... One of the things I rejoiced is I did not have to wash dishes. It was a great day. I mean, I was getting an education and all these other good things were going on. But the most important thing was I did not have to wash the dishes any longer. I hated the law of the dishes. Anyway, in my freshman year, I met a young lady that uh, I fell deeply in love with. Deeply in love with. I'm married to her now. And... Uh, uh, her parents were very strict. And so, you know, on campus, we would hold hands, and, you know, and when other guys were around, I'd put my arm around her shoulder and say, she, she's mine, you know, back off, stay away. And, and you know, we, you know we, we might have kissed once or twice in three years. <laughs> Who knows? You, you don't, you never will. But when we went home, her parents were super strict. I mean, super strict. For so three months, I mean, you know, it was, they didn't exactly have a six-inch ruler, but it was pretty close. You know, I was told very quickly, you know, keep your hands off our daughter. And, and Mr. McCracken, he, had, he wore glasses. And sometimes, you know, like at the dinner table, I might put my chair a little too close to Heather and lean up against her. And then all of a sudden, I would notice that Lou, Heather's father, wasn't eating any longer. But he'd taken his glasses, and he put them on his nose, and he was staring at me. And that was his unspoken communication to get away from my daughter. 
Heather's mother was a gourmet cook, and when we came home from college, she would cook us a nine-course meal that would take three hours to eat. It's extraordinary. And, and she, when she did it, she destroyed the kitchen. And guess what? They didn't have a dishwasher. And so, so every night, every time I was over at Heather's house, we, we, we would go in to her kitchen, which was a wreck, and it would take us an hour to clean up or two, and, and I would stick my hands in that warm, soapy water where Heather's hands were. And we were so close, I could smell her herbal essence shampoo. About a month into it, I determined I, I love washing dishes. <laughs> what changed? I fell in love. The God who created all laid down the life of his only son that I might know him as daddy, father. Christ paid the price of all my rebellion. And one day, you're going to put me in a casket and you'll see my body, but I'll be dancing. Because God is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have strove, driven, and worked with each of us. That you've not forgotten us, our parents, or our grandchildren. Whether it's through the law or it's through the creation of the trees and the environment that we live, that your handiwork and your power and your glory and your majesty and your love is everywhere. But Father, ultimately we come to that point of whether or not it's just knowledge or rejection or relationship. And Paul's made it very clear that the invitation this morning is to a love relationship. Oh, oh, God, let people see, open their eyes. It is, for the, it is for the joy that Jesus went to the cross. We've been given everything, freedom, life, a God who cares, who listens, a God who's Emmanuel, he's present, he's with us, he's never far from us. In our weakness, in our agony, in our suffering, you're there. You are our Redeemer. You saved us from ourselves. You saved us from the righteous condemnation of your law. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning, that's never come to faith in Christ, never put their trust in Christ, that they'll hear your voice saying, son or daughter, come, come to me. 
come through my son Jesus that we might walk together, that we might live together, that by my spirit living in you, you might hear my voice, that you might have the promise of eternity with me. Father, we leave this place this morning. My heart is filled with joy. Praise you, praise you, praise you, praise you, praise you for the blood of the Son. Praise you for your goodness. Praise you for your mercy. Praise you that in my darkness you sent light. Praise you that you never forgot about me. Praise you that in my rebellion you loved me even so. Take this, your word. Fasten it to our hearts. If we're far from, from you, bring us back into your family, into the sheep of your pasture. If we don't know you, then Father, let this be the day that we open our hearts to all that you've done in your Son, Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together as we close.